This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... We should not allow the idea of who should be a mediator to further delay the situation that you have just mentioned. The humanitarian situation is first-hand in any peace process. That's uh, Nansongo Muliro, who teaches diplomacy and international relations at the Technical University in Kenya on the need to push for a ceasefire in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Details coming up also. Protests clashed. Protesters clashed with police in Tunisia's capital over the weekend. A highway bomb killed two peacekeepers today in northern Mali. And the NBA says Hall of Famer Dikembe Mutombo is undergoing treatment for a brain tumor. We'll have these stories and more ahead on African News tonight. We start with our top story. International concern is rising about an offensive by Ethiopian and Eritrean government forces in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Ethiopia's federal authorities today said they will assume control of airports and other infrastructure in the region, while the Tigray regional government said it would respect an African Union call for an immediate ceasefire. Mohamed Yasuf reports from VOA's news center in Nairobi. Ethiopian authorities said Monday their forces will take charge of the aviation, transport and communication infrastructure in the embattled Tigray region. The head of the Horn Institute for Strategic Studies, Hassan Khananji, told VOA the government's goal is to control the movement of the rebels and humanitarian services in the Tigray region. Any limitations to ability to uh, transport and move around and communicate tends to heighten an existing you know, uh, situation, such a humanitarian situation is already going on right now in, in Ethiopia. In part because, number one, humanitarian organizations are going to find it harder to reach those areas. Uh, communication is going to be limited with regard to assisting for help or humanitarian assistance. So, of course, then that is going to uh, make things worse for those who are already vulnerable. The government defended its move to take over key facilities in the Tigray region, saying the move will protect the country's sovereignty and territorial integrity and speed up humanitarian aid to those who need assistance. In a statement, the government blamed the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front for violating the five-month-old ceasefire in August and carrying out an offensive against its government forces and allied militia groups. On Saturday, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Musa Faki, called for a new ceasefire and resumption of humanitarian services. The Tigray leadership say they are not to blame for the escalation of the conflict and are ready to respect a ceasefire. The TPLF also called for the withdrawal of Eritrean troops in the region and for the international community to press the Ethiopian government to begin peace talks. This month's planned talks in South Africa failed to take off and logistical challenges were blamed for the postponement. The Ethiopian government said Monday it is committed to a peaceful resolution of the conflict through the African Union-led talks. However, 
the government and TPLF have yet to agree on who should lead the reconciliation process. Nasongo Muliro teaches diplomacy and international relations at the Technical University in Kenya. He says mediation and political settlement take time, but there is an immediate need to push for a ceasefire and provide urgent humanitarian support to the war victims. We should not allow the idea of who should be a mediator to further delay the situation that you have just mentioned. The humanitarian situation is first hand in any peace process. That even before we jump to the mediator, if there is a ceasefire, then have we provided the welfare survival mechanisms for the victims before we think of now resolving the conflict. The conflict, which began in November 2020 in the Tigray region between the government forces and the Tigray rebel groups, has led to the deaths of tens of thousands. Rice groups accuse both sides of committing widespread human rights violations. The UN Humanitarian Office says 20 million Ethiopians need humanitarian assistance and thousands of people continue to flee conflict in the north of the country due to conflict. Mohamed Yusuf for VOA News, Nairobi. Backers of Burkina Faso's latest coup cited the military's failure to stem a deadly Islamist insurgency that is spreading across the Sahel and has displaced millions of people. A new analysis shows more civilians died in the Western Sahel conflict during the first half of 2022 than in all of 2021. Henry Wilkins reports from Milu Burkina Faso. War has raged between Western Sahel countries and militants linked to Islamic State or Al-Qaeda for more than a decade. Analysts say failure to stop attacks helped spark two coups in Burkina Faso, the most recent coming September 30th. Both military hunters that carried out the coups cited the inability of the previous government to improve security. Constantin Guvi is an analyst for the Klingendale Institute, a Dutch think tank. Uh, there was this expectation that a military leader would perform better than a civilian one. What we've seen instead is that since January, the security session has continued to deteriorate. Data from the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project shows that nearly 2,300 civilians were killed in the Western Sahel conflict during the first half of 2022. That's about 400 more than the number killed in the whole of 2021. In Burkina Faso, one of the previous military hunters' flagship policies for reducing violence was to create military interest zones. It called for civilians within conflict-affected provinces to leave for a period so the army could carry out operations against the terrorists. VOA travelled close to one of the military zones and met Honas Sawadogo, who says he was forced to leave his home because of the policy. He says it was the government's decision to move them out to their homes. It's not what they wanted, he says. The military should have come and done something before it got to this point. Since we have left, we have no idea what they have done to protect our village. Gregor Sawadogo says he has received no support from the government since leaving his home, also in a military zone. He says, since I left, I've been working as a labourer with stonemasons. I get about $4 a day to feed my family, my mother, my wife and my four children. I have to pay the rent too. Despite the terrible violence and more than 2.6 million displaced in the Western Sahel, aid workers worry this war will become a forgotten crisis. Sandra Latouf is the representative of the UN Children's Fund in Burkina Faso. She just returned from Jibo, a town in the country's north, where for months militants have blocked deliveries of food. 
Trucks carrying supplies can be seen here halted because it's too dangerous to travel further north. One convoy was recently attacked. She says children in Jibo are starving to death. It's a big hurt to see that children are suffering, the population are suffering. We need to talk about Burkina Faso. We need to talk about the Sahel. This is a situation that needs attention of the world. As the war in the Sahel intensifies, attacks by militants have begun to spread to coastal West African countries. The next phase in the jihadists' efforts to destabilise the region. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Melu, Burkina Faso. The UN mission in Mali, MINUSMA, says a highway bomb killed two peacekeepers today and injured four others in the northern part of the country. According to the French news agency AFP, the mission tweeted that their vehicle hit an improvised explosive device during a search and detection mission. MINUSMA has 12,000 personnel in Mali. The UN says extremists linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have used IEDs and mines to kill 74 peacekeepers since the start of the mission nine years ago. The explosive device also killed 103 civilians and injured 297 last year. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our program from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce's U.S. Africa Business Center is convening its first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the Africa Business Center on this initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa, the top 10 finalists have been decided, and for the next two weeks, we will bring you a look at each one. We begin with Imadago Ogenkiwe William from Nigeria, whose startup Valley B leverages tech to design and manufacture sensor enabled beehives that help farmers monitor their bees remotely. My name is Emadago Ogenekewe William. I am 23 years old and I am from Jos, Nigeria. I am the CEO and co-founder of Valley Bee. I and my team applied to the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition because we saw the massive impact it will have in our product. We saw financial opportunity, the mentorship, and also the strategic partnership we can get from being part of this competition. Being one of the top 10 finalists in this competition means a lot to me personally and also to our startup because this would give us the opportunity to showcase our work and our technology to the world. This would have a massive impact on the climate and also on local beekeepers. Our product is a smart hive that is IoT enabled and sensor enabled 
that constantly maintains the optimal temperature and humidity that bee needs to produce honey. With our product, farmers can increase their honey yield and actually have a great impact on their local family and also to the environment. Our project will have tremendous impact in the life of local farmers and beekeepers here in Nigeria and also in Africa because we are producing a product that will help them increase their honey yield and also maximize their profit. And as a country like Nigeria imports over $2 billion worth of honey per year, we are empowering these farmers to cash in in this market and also make the maximum of profit. Our project also have impact in the pharmaceutical and medical industry in that honey is a very important raw material for drug production. The first thing we will do if we win this competition is to acquire more equipment and raw material to expand our business to two more states in Nigeria, Kaduna and Nasarawa states. That was uh, Imadago Ogen Kiwe William from Nigeria, whose startup Valley B leverages tech to design and manufacture sensor enabled beehives. Protesters clashed with police in Tunisian capital over the weekend. Reuters says the protests took place Friday and Saturday in the poor districts of Etadaman in Intilika. They erupted following the burial of a young man who died in August in a fall during a police chase. The news service Al Arabiya says two opposition groups in Hada Party and the Free Constitutional Party also staged a large protest Saturday against President Kais Saeed. Saeed seized power and dissolved parliament last year amid food and fuel shortages and rising unemployment. The French news agency AFP says some in the crowd shouted, down, down, the coup will fail, and revolution against dictator Kais. The news service says former Prime Minister Ali Larier says people are angry, and in his words, we are telling him to leave. In South Africa, there's no end in sight to a strike by transport workers that economists say is costing the economy billions of rands. Workers at Transnet, the state-owned enterprise that runs South Africa's ports, rail and pipeline network, downed tools ten days ago demanding higher wages. With services at ports and railways paralyzed, imports and exports are at a standstill, affecting the entire region of Southern Africa and beyond. Darren Taylor has more. Transnet's initial offer of a 3% wage increase now stands at 5%, with mediators advising it to raise this to 6%. The United Transport Workers Union says its members will accept 6%, but only if Transnet guarantees their jobs are safe for the next few years. The South African Transport and Allied Workers Union wants the same guarantee, but union leader Anele Kitt says members will reject any offer below the country's current inflation rate of just under 8%. They are looking for double digits, but they are willing to listen if an offer of what is equal or above the inflation rate can be put on the table. And also what is worrisome 
is that Transnet is unable to commit in making sure that they won't shed jobs. Transnet still suffering the aftershocks of rampant corruption and mismanagement. It says it's in a financial hole and cannot promise anything in terms of job security. It says a higher wage bill will nudge it closer to bankruptcy. Economists say Transnet's collapse would trigger a corresponding implosion in Africa's most industrialized economy. It relies on efficient ports to get money-spinning exports, such as iron ore, coal, gold and fresh produce to markets around the world. Mining companies alone report they're losing around $45 million a day in export revenue. Kit says union members are well aware of the damage their strike is causing, but feel they have to stand up for their rights. As a union, we would like to resolve this strike even today. But unfortunately, our members have spoken across the country. We are a union that is worker-controlled, and this is what is facing them on a daily basis. And we understand their struggle. Therefore, they will be on the picketing lines up until Transnet calls us back with a meaningful offer that can be accepted by our members. Hector Shange manages a goods clearance and forwarding company in the port of Durban. Its operations are suspended. Shange says the firm's losing money by the minute and its previous good reputation has been wiped out. Importers and our exporters, they even now losing their faith on us, as if now is, is something that we've caused. We've got another vessel that is just returned back, and then they said they'll discharge the cargo in, in Singapore. And then that means now we're going to have to book another vessel that is going to be coming back from Singapore with that cargo. And the client are furious to pay the freight twice. South Africa's agricultural sector says it's already lost billions of dollars because fruit and vegetable exports can't get to international markets. It says it'll be forced to shed tens of thousands of jobs if the strike continues much longer. People like Shange are desperate. I would like to see our government and I would like to see all the unions just to speed up the negotiations processes that they are taking place in order for us to be able to carry on with our lives and work and carry on as normal because we're losing businesses. President Cyril Ramaphosa has been criticized for making a state visit to Saudi Arabia instead of staying in South Africa to help end the crisis. But his office says he cannot be expected to deal with every domestic problem and he's confident his deputies are doing their best to end the transnet shutdown. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. During his more than nine-year-long tenure as head of China's Communist Party, Xi Jinping has emphasized the importance of China-Africa relations. In Johannesburg, Kate Bartlett asked ordinary South Africans what they think about the leader of their country's staunch ally and biggest trade partner. Not one of about a dozen South Africans interviewed by VOA at a bustling mall in Johannesburg this week knew the name of the man many consider to be among the most powerful people in the world. Um, <laughs> Neither Gundo Giovanni, a banker in his 30s, nor his brother Mulanga, an entrepreneur, could name the Chinese leader. 
name. And you? I also don't know his name. Michelle Stoltz, a 51-year-old who works in the pharmaceutical industry, did not know either. Um, uh, um, His name's on the the tip of my tongue. What most did agree on, however, was that they were happy for Xi Jinping to retain power as long as China and South Africa's trade, investment and economic relations remain strong. Last year, two-way trade reached $29 billion. Fian Kupalati, a 27-year-old legal analyst, noted that both countries are also members of BRICS, a group of emerging economies. The, the relationship between South Africa and China for now is good. And if the president still remains in power, I think for the foreseeable future it would still be good. Asked if they weren't worried that South Africa, the continent's foremost democracy, was such close friends with an authoritarian regime, most people interviewed thought it was fine Pretoria maintains relations with countries with different political systems and brushed off concerns over human rights in China. Because with such a population, I'm sure they could revolt and stuff, but they seem happy. They seem like they like what's going on there. Aubrey Nechikweta, a 55-year-old Uber driver, said he would prefer the Chinese system. In China, he said he believes there is order and things work well, even if she stays in power indefinitely, as some analysts predict is his intention. Wong being uh, the president for life, but as long as everything works, does to me doesn't matter. Because here in South Africa, the problem we've got, we've got from the leaders, from top to the downwards, the leaders are corrupt. Nechi Kweta said it appears that in China, the president gets things done, whereas in South Africa, there might be a democracy, but its politicians don't care about the people. They remember only the people when their elections, when they'll come around with these big cars, giving uh, people these fake T-shirts, vote for our party, and then by then they'll be cook, uh, calling people our people, our people. But after that, nothing happens. Some analysts told VOA they thought Chinese-African relations, not only economically but diplomatically, had been at their highest level ever under Xi's tenure over the past decade and expected them to be just as robust as ever heading into an expected third term. Corbis van Staden, a China expert at the South African Institute of International Affairs, said he doesn't think there'll be massive complaints coming out of Africa if she does end up taking a third term. His continued tenure, I think, will will provide a kind of a stability to the relationship, um, which I think most African countries would be happy would be happy about. One change analysts do expect, however, is a move away from the massive infrastructure projects in Africa seen under Xi's Belt and Road Initiative towards a focus on other areas like information and communications technology. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. The search is on for Africa's best and brightest minds in finance, cybersecurity, technology, and anything digital. Making social impact through cutting-edge technologies, innovation, and creativity in Africa. Out of 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa... Only three will be selected from the top 10 continental finalists from Egypt, Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and Cameroon. Join the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners, including the Voice of America, 
when the three finalists are featured at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in December 2022 in Washington. Stay tuned. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbili Abaro, and our engineer, John Dryden, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.